0: This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed, bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant <coughs> to a motherfucker like me, can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. <coughs> you know, Make some noise! Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, skip, skip, skip! If you don't chew Big Red, then... F- you. That's so horny. you naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Three cash, homie. three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W-Boss, W-Boss, W-Boss. Hi. Hello. Hello. Is anyone there? I don't fucking know if anybody's there. I, I can only read the anal- I can only read the analytics on this thing, so I don't know if anybody's there. But hello, if anyone is listening, hello out there. Um, can you dig it? My name is Sam Lacrosse, and I am the host of the Do Not Listen to This podcast. Welcome to episode eight officially, nine overall, but eight officially in the order. We are not if we do not count post zero, which is just the introductory. Um. I get the word post-podcast confused so so often because I'm reading a transcript of my post, particularly when I do one of these throwback posts like I'm doing today, and um, moving it toward podcast form. So it's kind of, it's it's bizarre when I see like things that are either, especially when I'm reading from past posts, the things that have happened like six months ago or even like a year ago, and I see them popping up and I'm like, what that that's that, what the fuck, like, that, that, that's not relevant anymore. And it's just like, you know, you're, you're looking at these things and you're trying to, you know, you see it come and you're like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And then you're trying to, like, make sure, like, you have a backup thing that's going to pop up in your head so when you go over the line you don't say the stupid shit that's going to come up in the thing. So, um, for that reason, I try to not do as many current events posts as I do, as I did last year. Well, I, I really don't do current events because I think... Um, I have a lot of respect for people that do current events because I personally would lose my shit if I did current events, I think, unless I was doing it with somebody else who was very, very strong mentally. And that's not a lot of people in today's opinion that could do current events like every single day, like uh, anybody on the mainstream TV or like, you know, somebody, like a podcast or something like that where they just cover the news all day, like, ugh. So whenever I do a current events podcast, I try to, you know, tie it into some kind of like existential, like, trend in society, and I kind of use current events to prove that point, but so now I, I think this is kind of, you know, this is going to be one of those throwback posts, this is kind of one of the, um, the ones that I did, and it was during, I remember when I wrote this, it was after the, um, during the early stages of the Black Lives Matter protests and everything that was happening going on, um, after the George Floyd death particularly, I wrote this post during the week, uh, two weeks after I believe, uh, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin in the streets of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I saw a lot of people being very hostile towards one another for no reason really at all other than they had a Twitter account and they were feeling kind of pissed off about some shit and they wanted to like, you know, yell at somebody. So I I thought this would be a opportune time. You know, I think it's actually starting to calm down a little bit now. Maybe it's because I've just been so plugged out of everything going on, not just politically, but I mean like economically. I mean, the most thing I was plugged into was the GameStop thing because that was just so indefinitely hilarious that I just want, I had to, you know, Plug in and you know I ended up writing a post about that that's the um that's the one I did a couple weeks ago I'm blanking on the name now but it's up on uh, post and podcast forum on do not read this blog or don't read this Blog.com, rather and the don't listen to this podcast so I'm seeing a lot of this pop up recently not really really recently but like especially like during the last couple years and I think it's very important to just draw our attention to it it's something I actually brought up in the last podcast I did last week so uh, let's just get into it so There are a lot of places that people go to for wisdom. Some seek counsel from their parents, some reference in ancient texts like the Bible, Quran, or Torah. Some seek advice from modern thought leaders such as Brene Brown or Malcolm Gladwell. So I say fuck all of those things and pop in a Star Wars movie. Okay, well, not really. There's nothing wrong with using those things at all. I'm just the biggest closeted Star Wars nerd on the planet. It comes natural to me. I just, well, I guess I'm not the biggest closeted Star Wars nerd anymore now since I did write about it in the blog post and now I'm telling you over a audio format while I'm the typical Star Wars not closet. I'm actually in a closet talking about Star Wars. I record this from my bedroom closet. So I am technically still a closeted Star Wars nerd. So that, that will, I still have that going for me. So any case, for those uneducated folks out there, Star Wars is known as probably the greatest, most marketable franchise in the history of modern cinema. What started off as a cheap and way off the wall idea in 1976 by some wannabe named George Lucas turned into a behemoth of a franchise that recently sold to the Walt Disney Company for over $4 billion. And I was stunned by the, that the price was that low. And Disney, those bastards over there, they get, really got a bargain for the damn thing. So, the basic premise of Star Wars is basically a mixture of underdog human and alien life forms taking on an overwhelmingly large force of evil a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You've probably seen the card somewhere. The whole galaxy is controlled by an existential field of invisible energy called the Force, which connects all things within the universe to one another. There are beings that can manipulate the Force to give them telekinetic abilities, which give these beings superhuman-esque qualities. The good ones are called the Jedi, and the bad ones are called the Sith. Throw in spaceships, laser swords, fantastic music, and atrocious writing, and you get the masterpiece that is a Star Wars film. But even if you don't know Star Wars all that well, you probably have heard of at least this one guy, Darth Vader. Big black suit of armor, I am your father, James Earl Jones voice, any of those bells ringing, that's him. So... Darth Vader acts as the primary villain of the original trilogy, and is well known as perhaps the greatest film villain in film history. However, what most people who aren't fanatics don't know is that Darth Vader didn't start out as the giant, black-suited James Earl Jones robot guy. He was a man, not unlike you or I, at least in the context of Star Wars. Darth Vader's birth name was Anakin Skywalker, a, born, a boy born into slavery to a single mother on a desert planet by means of immaculate conception, i.e. no other life form impregnated her, she just kind of got pregnant. Anakin turned out to be the most highly gifted Force being the Jedi had ever seen, so much so that they thought he was the Chosen One, a being so powerful that he would bring balance to the Force. He was freed from slavery and trained by his young master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, my favorite character, in case you were wondering, if or weren't, no skin off my bones either way, who became his best friend and an almost brother figure. Anakin proceeded to prove everything the Jedi said right. He was immensely skilled and considered a prodigy. He progressed very, very fast, faster than any Jedi probably in the history of their order but he was also immensely vulnerable. Anakin was very old when the Jedi brought him in, so much so that the Jedi almost turned him away. Anakin was very in touch with his emotions, which, combined with his immense power, turned out to be a very volatile combination. The first evidence of this came when Anakin's mother was kidnapped by a group of savages on his his home planet of Tatooine. They beat, tortured, and probably raped her for months, and eventually was put out of her misery, dying in Anakin's arms as soon as he found her. Anakin, naturally, flew into a rage, He mercilessly slaughtered the entire tribe of beings, women and children included, something strongly forbidden, no shit, against the generally pacifist Jedi. But he didn't stop there. Going further against the Jedi, he married a senator, Padme Amidala, in secret. The two were deeply in love with one another, but had to keep it a secret out of fear of the Jedi expelling Anakin for his transgressions. It wasn't shortly after that, Anakin began having having premonitions of Padme's demise, much like his mother's. They were expecting a child, and he became obsessed with the thought that she might die while giving birth. He became hyper-focused with acquiring more power in order to protect her. But there was a problem. The Jedi didn't seek power. They only sought to protect the galaxy. So there was only one place for Anakin to pursue it. The Sith. Anakin's other mentor, Palpatine, who at that time was the Supreme Chancellor of the entire galaxy, meaning he was basically the president of all the planets that were in the Star Wars galaxy, revealed himself to Anakin as a Sith Lord one the Jedi had been searching for for more than a decade. Luring him in with the promise of saving his wife, Palpatine corrupted Anakin to the Sith and unleashed him on the rest of the galaxy. He also rechristened him with a new name, Darth Vader. Anakin proceeded to slaughter an anarchist cell of galactic criminals in most of the Jedi Order, including massacring a group of Jedi children. Anything, anyone that was in this way of his desire for power was immediately destroyed. Obi-Wan, however, survived the Purge, and stowed away on Padme's ship to confront Anakin when she went to confront him herself. When he revealed himself, Anakin choked Padme out and engaged with Obi-Wan, enraged at the supposed betrayal of his wife, even though she didn't even know that Obi-Wan was stowed away. Long story short, after the most intense lightsaber battle in the film series, Obi-Wan's end up kicking Anakin's ass so bad that the only way he can physically survive is to wear the Darth Vader suit. Padme ends up dying, and what remains of Anakin's soul is completely excoriated by his pain and rage the transformation into Darth Vader concludes. So why indulge in my nerdery? Well, as much as I would like to talk about Star Wars for hours, there is a point to this whole discussion. Before Anakin and Obi-Wan fight, Obi-Wan pleads with Anakin to repent so that he doesn't have to resort to violence to stop Anakin's rampage. Anakin defiantly states, If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And that was the moment. That was when Obi-Wan knew that his brother was gone. When he drew that line in the sand, no pun absolutely intended there, to those who know. Obi-Wan knew that Anakin Skywalker didn't exist anymore. He was now Darth Vader. Fighting back shock and tears, Obi-Wan replies, Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I will do what I must. Now, I am no way, in no way calling our country a country of Sith Lords. I seriously doubt that all of you have a fetish about slicing small children in half with a lightsaber. But I do think that that line speaks volumes, especially in the climate in which we're currently embroiled. Too often we find ourselves in scenarios where we become so entrenched in our own beliefs that we're willing to compartmentalize in severe ways in order to morph how we see the world. For Anakin, it was the fear of losing his wife. For some, it might be a political candidate. Getting fired from a job. Getting denied an opportunity. From here, the road to uncompromising dogma starts. If I don't do everything this man says, my wife will die. If this man or woman becomes president, my life will be put in peril. I can't trust the private sector anymore because they laid me off. Fuck that guy for not thinking I'm ready. He's awful. As Americans, I feel that we, especially the generations that are more hip to social media, are losing our middle ground, our inability to see nuance, our ability to assume the better of one another, our ability to ask better questions instead of pursuing the answers that we want to hear. And that last one is especially big. Let's flip Theo's prior statements into questions. Is there maybe, just maybe, a way to save my life without having to wipe out billions of people? Is this man or woman who just became president really going to go out of their way to fuck my life up? Is it fair to blame an entire company, let alone a sector of the economy, for my dismissal? Maybe I'm not ready. I wonder what I can do to, to better so that next time I can prove myself. More and more, it seems like we're heading down a treacherous path. Like we're diverging from one another. Two pieces of a former whole that think they can, in such opposite ways of one another, that we can no longer coexist. At least on the surface. But I don't think that we're too far gone. At least not yet. In fact, I think that we just need to work at regaining the middle ground. And that's what this podcast is going to be about. In order to accomplish this, we will need to discuss how this process of absolutism happens, how our culture weaponizes it, and what steps we need to take to deter it. And if you can, don't mention the word sand around this post. Again, if you know, you know. So, like I said in the intro a couple minutes ago, You don't have to be a psychopathic Sith Lord, to the contrary, in order to succumb to absolutism. We do it all the time. I do it more often than I should. Some literally live in a world of absolutes. It's quite depressing, and I feel bad for those people. I think a good place to start would be to reignite our discussion of common enemy identity politics. Common enemy identity politics, if you remember, is the bad kind of identity politics. CEID occurs when a group of people who believe one thing go after another group who believes the opposite, and attempt to quote-unquote beat them. The architect of this concept, or at least the guy who brought it into the mainstream, is a man named Jonathan Haidt, the author of the phenomenal book The Coddling of the American Mind and the Happiness Hypothesis. To give some background, Haidt currently currently teaches at NYU's Stern School of Business as an ethics professor, and has long been a prominent researcher in the field of psychology. However, in his book The Coddling of the American Mind, written along with First Amendment lawyer Greg Lukianoff, Haidt takes aim at a bigger issue, the growing fragility of American youth, specifically students on college campuses. Height discovered a disturbing trend that was based on multiple factors. College students are getting mentally softer, which will in turn lead to a softer culture that will inevitably define our future if not reversed. In an interview with political commentator Ben Shapiro, Haidt begins to crack open the shell of the core problem of this issue, absolutism defined by common enemy identity politics. According to Haidt, this is getting even more intense due to a rapid increase of something called intersectionality which is when two or more defined identities cross one another to form a new quote-unquote intersection of how we see ourselves. For example, if you're black and a woman, you're a black woman, obviously. If you're gay and Hispanic, you're a gay Hispanic. Nothing wrong with that description. It simply states who you are in a broad context. The problem, according to Height, is that people aren't seeing it as simply a form of identity. They're seeing it as a form of division. Oppressor versus oppressed. Good versus evil. My ideals versus yours. For example, according to height, the common identity, coming back to you now, on college campuses, for people of the intersectionality is the quote-unquote straight white male population. For the longest time in recorded human history, and some would argue today, if you fit that mold, you were generally pretty good to go. That wasn't against social constructs for the majority of the world, and you basically got along okay. But this is 2020, or at the most e- or now 2021, I should say. We're at the most equal point in terms of society that we've ever been in recorded human history. However, that lack of major problems to, of major problems society has led to people amplifying lesser problems that may no longer even be there. This leads to common identity, enemy identity politics, which increasingly creates division and hostility. According to Haidt in his interview with Shapiro, quote, identity politics aren't bad in and of itself. Extremism makes them bad, End quote. And that's the first step in the slippery slope of absolutism. An impassioned belief that becomes extreme due to a lack of emotional control and or logical reason. There needs to be a genesis, a seed planted that could warp the mind in order to pursue an an insane crusade. For Anakin, it was either to seek potentially dangerous amounts of power or your wife dies. Anakin, being warped by his emotions, chose the former, and it cost him dearly. Now let's compare it to the example that Haidt laid out. The model that best fits here is the oppressor versus oppressed scenario. Let's say you're a black woman who wants to work as an investment banker. You go in for an interview and you basically see a 500-pack of stationery working cubicles in the office. You go in for the interview, think you do well, but you end up not getting it. You're pissed and you felt like you deserved the job. Now, the rational thing would be to assume the best of folks. Maybe they found a better candidate. Maybe they didn't think that you'd fit with the culture. Or maybe something like that. However, what's easy to do is blame an oppressor. Those damn straight white male ass people that all colluded to make sure you didn't get the job because of your intersectionality. You then assume that all straight white males are against you and your culture, and you are determined to right the wrong they imposed upon you. Once you get your impassioned belief, you do the next logical step in regards to human nature. You search for a community to reaffirm and enable your false belief. For Anakin, it was Palpatine, a mentor that turned out to only want to use his power as a weapon in order to accomplish his mission of dominating the galaxy. Not only did Palpatine become a community to Anakin, he became something worse, an enabler. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word enable is to, quote, provide with the means or opportunity, end quote. Palpatine did nothing to corral Anakin, nothing to hone in his premonitions. But come on, let's be real. This is a universe where aliens and giant furry creatures can wield lightsabers and fly spaceships. I would think it'd be pretty reasonable to assume that their healthcare would be pretty advanced as well. But for Anakin, he didn't want to hear logical reason. He wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. He thought his wife was in trouble. And Palpatine enabled that thought by molding and nurturing it to his own benefit. Let's now revisit our hypothetical scenario. The black woman who gets turned down for a position in an investment bank. She's hurt. She's pissed. She interviewed well and had excellent qualifications. She felt like she got discriminated against due to the overwhelming amount of white folks that worked at the firm. She feels oppressed. In order to right this perceived wrong, which again may or may not be true, she decides to take up arms against the firm. She starts to read out to friends on Facebook, other women of color and business, to see if this incident had happened to them. For some of them, it has, again, in their minds, no factual proof. And for some, it hasn't. But it doesn't matter. Why? The woman is still angry and upset. She won't hear another side of the story, even if the side might be more reasonable than hers. Why? Because she doesn't want to hear it. Emotionally charged beliefs are like tidal waves. Once one begins in your mind, almost nothing can stop it. Her friends, being good friends try their best to soothe her and make her feel better. But they don't address the problem. They become a community of enablers, simply reaffirming this woman's maybe true, maybe not true belief of discrimination against women of color in the workplace. But enabling isn't enough. The tidal weight of absolutism is insatiable. It requires action. And not just any action, vicious, uncompromising action. You don't just try to right the wrong. Again, no proof that the wrong is indeed wrong. You go completely out of your way to attempt to destroy the other side. It becomes savagely tribal. You pull out all the stops. You go full T-800 on those motherfuckers who are in your way. For Anakin, this is the whole I'm going to slaughter my entire old community, groups of small children, and anyone proposes a threat to my wife thing. Two things are wrong with the reasoning behind this, other than the fact that you shouldn't do either in this scenario, but neither that's neither here nor there. The first, as I've mentioned, is that Anakin had no proof that his wife was going to die. He didn't know that the power he was pursuing would help the situation whatsoever, and in fact it didn't. He just did it because it affirmed something within himself that he thought was true, without having any evidence to back it up. The second is that this idea really didn't become concrete until someone enabled it. It was Palpatine who told him to do all those things. Anakin was just seeking greater power. He wasn't trying to commit genocide. But Palpatine, the enabler, saw this ambition to protect his wife at all costs and planted a horrific seed, which then led to the atrocities that followed. So back to our hypothetical scenario. The group of women operating on a false belief decide to team up and sue the company that didn't hire the woman for discrimination. They're uncompromising. They're out for blood. Or at least a hefty sum of money. They hire the best lawyers and go for the people's elbow off the top roof, or off the top rope. They succeed and end up settling with the company for a ton of money. When you take away all that stuff that leads to their respective incidents and take them both at face value, they sound like successes. They both got what they wanted until you hear the ending. Padme dies anyway. After Anakin chokes her out, she dies in childbirth, or quote-unquote loses the will to live, according to the robot doctor, again, that's the horrific writing of Star Wars coming back for you, while giving birth to their twins, Leia and Luke. All those lengths that he went to fulfill his sense of absolutism ultimately destroyed his original goal. As for the woman, yes, she might have gotten a ton of money and a profile on BuzzFeed, but now no other investment banks will even give her an interview. Why? Well, because they don't trust her. Who would? She's capable of wielding power that could cripple them if they would ever dare to cross her. They decide it's not worth the risk. All those lengths she went to fulfill her sense of absolutism ultimately destroyed her original goal. Now, those are obviously some extreme examples. Some pretty extreme examples, especially the Star Wars one, because that's you know I'm just extreme of an example. You don't hear of those things like that often, especially the whole genocide thing. Yuck. But they generally all follow the same process. An impassioned belief followed by a pursuit of an enabling community followed by a vicious pursuit of destroying your enemy. That's absolutism and common-identity politics in a nutshell. It happens everywhere, and for a variety of reasons. The first is that, by nature, we are emotionally driven creatures. We like to think that we are logical, reasonable people. We like to think that we use our brains to creatively deconstruct arguments, get to the root causes, and then determine a decision based on a various set of analysis and data. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, Hint, I'm not. To tell you, but we're wrong. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes. Mark Manson, in his book Everything is Fucked, and an, an article for Fast Company, has written extensively about this. Manson, in his typical blunt style, imagines your mind as a car. Two brains reside in your car. A feeling brain and a thinking brain. We like to think our thinking brain drives the car, but in reality the feeling brain does. It's why human beings can be so irrational. It's why college students drink exorbitant amounts of alcohol on the weekends. It's why Midwestern men scream and throw things when the quarterback for their favorite football team throws an interception. It's why people would ever think of ingesting bath salts. But none of these these things make sense logically, yet we do them anyway. Why? Because our emotions drive our decisions and override our thinking brain. Manson didn't just come up with this overnight, by the way. It's been proven multiple times by multiple different people. The most notable that I've read firsthand is Israeli-American psychologist and statistician Daniel Kahneman, along with the help of his late psychologist partner Amos Tversky. In his groundbreaking work, Thinking Fast and Slow. Instead of a feeling and thinking brain, Daniel Kahneman refers to them as a fast and slow brain. The fast, according to Kahneman, is irrational but essential. It's why we can do incredibly complex things by second nature, such as drive a car down a highway. It's the irrational part that gets us into trouble. It easily tricks us into various types of biases and subjective thought, simply because it moves too fast we can't control it. And this is where the slow brain comes in. The whole point of the book is to teach people to recognize when our fast brains is at work, to see if any biases and mind games are at work, and slow down if necessary in order to act and think in a more effective manner. In short, we need to overcome our fast brain through the use of our slow brain. The problem with that is we don't do it enough. Not nearly enough. Through reasons I'll explain later, I would argue that we've gotten worse at this, not better. We haven't worked on disciplining our slow brains so that they can interfere with our fast brains in order to correct them. When our brains aren't disciplined, we can sometimes get impassioned beliefs that may or may not be true thrown to the forefront of, our, forefront of our thoughts. When we don't check our emotions, we can let that thought grow and consume us, therefore starting the process of absolutism. The second reason for the increase in absolutism is because we have ex- we've experienced a directly correlated increase in the amount and the availability of information. The age we're living in isn't called the information age and in the economy for shits. Rapid advancements in social media and technology have forever shifted the way we communicate with one another. It's probably the reason why our country is still stand- our economy is still standing, especially during the time of Corona. There's a reason why in- industries such as artificial intelligence, big data, and tech companies spying on you, probably right now as you read or listen to this, through your lenses and your devices in order to market specific goods and services to you. Knowledge and information is power, and he who has the gold makes the rules. But a question may begin to arise. Why are you saying that this is a bad thing? Isn't more information a good thing? You just contradicted yourself earlier. Well, let me explain. Yes, more information is a good thing, but there's a caveat. The quote-unquote more information that you seek has to be good information, and that's the problem. A lot of the, inf- the quote-unquote information out there is complete and utter garbage, nonsense, and shit sandwiches. It violates everyone that Kahneman said with biases and aligned every- everything with them, or er- everything aligned with them, rather. It's why people left-leaning and right-leaning are so sep- skeptical of the news. Ratings across the board are tanking, and decentralized media is exploding. Yet we read anyway. We feed it into the nonsensical nonsense by reading it, sharing it, and spamming it. We think that people will care. And people do, because of our fast brains and feeling brains running the show, unchecked by our slow and thinking brains. The methods of communication make it easier to spread, much like a certain coronavirus strain that spread out of the world from China. It's infectious and not enough people do their part to wash their hands and stay the fuck away from one another. Personal responsibility is failing, the clickbait media is succeeding. Which leads me to a third reason, our natural negativity bias. According to VeryWellMind.com, the definition for negativity bias is, quote, our tendency not only to register negative stimuli more readily but also to dwell on those events, end quote. This is what most of the mainstream news media and social media companies thrive on. They get more ratings when they spread chaos, division, and panic. The reason why is simple when you use another analogy to describe it. Imagine you're at home with your husband or looking to pick out a movie. And we're about a year or the way into partial quarantine, so you've run through a lot of movies already. You don't want to pick something that's boring, cookie-cutter, or otherwise time-wasting. You want something that will satisfy you, whether that would be blood and guts, hilarious humor, nudity, violence, vices of humanity, etc. So, when human beings watch the news, they aren't looking for some talking head to tell them that everything is okay. They aren't looking for the affirmation of peace of mind and tranquility. No. They're looking for interesting shit. The stuff that can get them likes on Facebook and retweets on Twitter. The ones that will make them feel virtuous. The ones that will make them feel important. Look, kids, a death toll on TV. Carnage, destruction, murder, evil laugh. This leads to another term I want to touch on. Doom scrolling. The definition of doom scrolling, according to Urban Dictionary, is, quote, Obsessively reading social media posts about how utterly fucked we are. End quote. Ah, Urban Dictionary, cutting right through the bullshit and the truth. And man, is it the truth. The coronavirus has thrown doom scrolling to the forefront of our conversation, and not even including the things that happened at the Capitol building, the Black Lives Matter protests and ensuing riots and everything like that. So much so that it's taken some of my family members hostage. Recently, people, and I'm ashamed to say a very close family friend of mine, went on a rant about how Bill Gates was taking an active role in responding to the, pan- the pandemic, and it's only going to get worse this book on climate change that I just read. For those who don't know, Bill Gates runs the biggest phila- philanthropic organization that deals with public health in the world. He's researched this stuff for years. He's, don- he's donating every penny of his wealth when he and Melinda- his wife Melinda die to ensuring that other people around the world don't die from public health stuff. He knows what he's talking about. The Doom Scrollers came to two dominant conclusions, at least from what I saw, relating to the pandemic. One, Bill Gates is trying to use vaccines to make the entire world autistic. And two, Bill Gates is trying to use vaccines to put contract-chasing microchips inside of us so they can track every step of our movements. So, which is obviously not really a healthy mental state to be in. Twitter is worse because they're actively pushing doom scrolling. That's how their business model runs, by the way. If you read any book on how big tech really works, I have several that I would recommend to you. So reach out to me if you'd like them. But this is how the business model works. So a couple weeks into the pandemic seriously hitting, I remember getting a notification on Twitter that stated, I ran coronavirus mass graves visible from space. All I could do was laugh. But more on Twitter. I've had two Twitter accounts, not counting that the one I used to run for the blog, which I've since deleted. The reason why I don't have those two Twitter accounts anymore is because of negativity bias. My mental health couldn't take pe- people being awful to one another for the sake of people being awful to one another. I, comp- I couldn't comprehend the madness, so I just said fuck it and deleted it. And my mental health has improved tremendously. The events that made me delete my Twitter both times were the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco of 2018 and the George Floyd murder of 2020. Let's analyze each one. Brett Kavanaugh, a now Supreme Court Justice, was accused of numerous accounts of sexual assault while going through his confirmation process. He was eventually proven to be innocent. But the mob didn't care, because they never do. Brett Kavanaugh and his entire family were ruthlessly butchered. People call him a fascist, a pig, a rapist. They threw stones at him from every angle they could, just because they, what they thought, their absolutes, was the only thing that mattered. They made a grown man burst into tears on national television, sobbing his innocence. Only when the mob was satisfied with their misplaced virtue-laden shellacking did they finally show him mercy. The mob also tried to proclaim that their attacks were aimed towards the wife, and, toward his wife and daughters, and what an amazingly sickening lie that was. Miss Kavanaugh was called a cunt, an enabler, and a whore repeatedly. The Kavanaugh children were looked upon with shame. The Kavanaugh family was ruined forever because of the mob. Sound harsh? It's really not. Everywhere Brett Kavanaugh goes, there will be some person that thinks. There's that rapist. What a sickening freak. Every time Mrs. Kavanaugh goes to the grocery store, some people will still think, There's that enabling bitch allowing a predator husband to not be held accountable. Every time parents go to parent-teacher conferences, there will inevitably be one teacher that will still express their concerns. Oh, the Kavanaugh daughters are in my daughter's class? I can't have them being corrupted by that family. Can we switch her to another homeroom? The George Floyd murder was just as bad. Let me preface this by saying that I believe this incident has changed the world and our life in the United States forever. I've never seen anything like it, and I hope things do change for the better. But that didn't change the fact that the mob and opportunists saw an an opening to impose their absolutes on people. Here were some of the common things that I saw before I deleted my Twitter. If you support President Trump or any Republican official, you hate black people. If you support Black Lives Matter, you're a Marxist. If you're black and conservative, you're an Uncle Tom. We don't want you to be black. You're skinfolk, not kinfolk. That's what they told Daniel Cameron. If you're a Democrat, you just, you're just you just a social justice warrior who actively wants to undermine our society. A similar thing happened to New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees. In an interview with Yahoo Finance, Brees was asked to comment on kneeling for the national anthem, a trend that was popularized a few years ago back to protests against police brutality. When asked about a potential revival of that trend in 2020 due to the recent events, Brees stated, I will never agree with anyone disrespecting the flag, end quote. Well, that's not exactly what he said. Yahoo, being a mainstream news source, simply picked the most clickbait-esque material and cherry-picked it and blew it up on their platforms. Breeze's actual quote was this, quote, I will never agree with anyone disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. Let me tell what I see, or let me just tell you what I see or what I feel when the national anthem is played and when I look at the flag of the United States. I envision my two grandfathers, who fought for this country during World War II, one in the Army and one in the Marine Corps, both risking their lives to protect our country and try to make our country and this world a better place. So every time I stand with my hand over my heart looking at that flag and singing the national anthem, that's what I think about. And in many cases, that brings me to tears, thinking about that all has been sacrificed. Not just those in the military, but for for that matter, those throughout the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, and all that has been endured by so many people up until this point. And is everything right with our country right now? No, it's not. We still have a long way to go. But I think what you do by standing by standing there and showing respect to the flag with your hand over your heart is it shows unity. It shows that we are all in this together, we can all do better, and we're all part of the solution. End quote. So nowhere in that quote did Breeze mention anything about demeaning Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, or the protest. He simply was stating his opinion on what he thought he was right, or what he thought was right. Drew Breeze was someone who I looked to for leadership. He helped lift New Orleans, a city heavily populated by African Americans, by the way, out of Hurricane Katrina by inspiring the city and winning a Super Bowl. He's been an outspoken leader for veterans, a lot of whom are men and women of color. He and his wife, Brittany, donated $5 million for aid in the coronavirus relief in the state of Louisiana. He seems like a fantastic family man. He's widely considered one of the best leaders the NFL has ever seen. He's on the low end of the list of people who I would ever consider a racist. But there was one thing Bree should have been more cognizant of. He picked a fight at the wrong time. It wasn't necessarily his moment to take a stance, especially one where you can endanger your standing amongst your teammates, a lot of whom are black. He picked the wrong time to poke the bear. He should have been more considerate. But the mob didn't care, and they slaughtered him anyway. Malcolm Jenkins, a former teammate at Breeze, who actually became his teammate again this season, and perhaps the most outspoken NFL player on this issue, posted multiple things to his social media, one of them in tears over Breeze's quote-unquote insensitive comments. He commented that his grandfather had also fought in World War II, but had come back to the segregated United States who treated him very poorly, much like a lot of our Vietnam veterans, which are all valid and very correct points. Others followed. Shannon Sharp called for him to retire. Stephen A. Smith yelled at him over national television. LeBron James weighed in on Twitter. They let their absolutes get in the way of seeing more them seeing nuance, even though Brees should have been more careful. And you might have all noticed that I used the word was when describing my admiration for Drew Brees and his leadership. That was intentional, but it may not be permanent. Breeze's fall from grace in in my eyes was not because of the comments. I'm a firm believer that everyone can have an opinion if you have good reasons to back it up. I believe Drew Brees did that, as evidenced by the quote that he stated above Yahoo Finance. But the reason that I don't anymore was because he let the mob bully him. He walked back his opinion several times. He apologized profusely for what he believes in, even though he clearly doesn't mean it. His repeated comments mean as much. He's trying to save face. He bowed to the mob. Thankfully, he didn't succumb to the absolutism that drives our conversation, or some didn't su- succumb to the absolutism that drives our conversation. Michael Thomas, the superstar wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints, was originally upset, but then ex- accepted B- Breeze's apology to him. You know, like a reasonable person does when their mistake is truly a mistake. Tony Dungy, one of the most successful and arguably the most successful African-American football coach in NFL history, defended Breeze. He stated that he can be, he should be allowed to have an opinion and that people should try to meet him where he is so they can have a discussion. Benjamin Watson, a former teammate of Breeze and the author of the race relations book Under Our Skin, also showed support. As stated in a comment on Drew Breeze's Instagram post after the incident, quote, Love you and your family, brother. Discovery, contrition, courage, empathy, conviction, forgiveness, honesty are all steps in our journeys in life. Leaders lead, and that's what you always have been. Quote, or end quote. Stand tall. Face the absolutism bullies. Because they're just cowards in disguise. But there still remains a problem. One that persists in all cases that deal with bullies. Bullies are scary. They're hard to move. They don't like to give up their dominance. But they can be beaten. Absolutism is a horrible plague ripping through our culture. It must be abolished before it literally starts ripping us apart. And we've seen that some of that in 2021 already. In some cases it already has, like I just mentioned. But we must do our part. The easiest thing to do is change yourself before you can change anyone else. That's rule number six, in Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, by the way. Put your house in order before you criticize the world. But changing yourself is really, really hard, especially when that change is targeted towards something that is as habitual of a behavior as absolutism is. Thus, decisive and targeted steps are needed to remove those old habits and start new ones. In order to do this... I think it would be wise to counteract the three reasons for absolutism, an unchecked fast-feeling brain, an overwhelmingly amount of mostly bad information and negativity bias, with things that specifically work in opposite tandem with them. So, as proven in my prior section, an unchecked fast-feeling brain can quickly lead to cognitive biases about our perceptions of things, which can then lead to a wave of emotion roiling over it to draw the proverbial line in the sand. Emotions are difficult to control. As I've said before, you shouldn't try to sifle them. So, what I would suggest for counteraction one is to detach. Remove yourself from your emotions temporarily and attempt to see the bigger picture. Some people call this mindfulness, and I've heard several people call it several different things. But I like the word detachment, and I'll explain to you why. In his books, Jocko Willink has talked about a multitude of stories that he faced while fighting in Iraq at the height of the War on Terror in the mid-2000s. In one of his most notable stories, Willink is staring down the sight of a long-range rifle, but he can't see his target. The field of vision is too narrow. Willink then takes his eye from the sight, steps back, and observes the whole battlefield. He is then able to successfully navigate the remainder of the mission and guide his team to victory. Willink calls this detachment because he literally took himself out of his own little world to view the bigger one around him. This must also be what you do in order to combat absolutism. You must see the bigger world. You must see that there are other opinions than yours, other opinions that could even debunk yours. You must account for everything, take all available information in, and then make an informed decision about something. All the stories in the second section failed to do that, including the one with Drew Brees. I'm not saying that Drew Brees is totally right, because he wasn't. But what Drew Brees could have done better was detach, be more aware of the transformative state that America was in at that time, and choose to fight that battle another day, when people who weren't as emotionally ravaged could muster the fortitude to have that conversation. And I believe that this is a place where Malcolm Jenkins could improve as well. Let me reiterate, the man is perhaps the biggest social justice advocate that currently plays in the NFL. He carries a lot of clout and is respected by nearly all who play, and he's a really good football player. His opinions carry a lot of weight. Where I believe Jenkins could improve would be to listen to the whole of Drew Brees' quote, instead of getting bogged down by that one section of it. In other words, detach. Detach from that quote, feel your emotions, calm down, and then reach out to him. These men are leaders' leaders. It's best when men like that work to find common ground, not throw potshots and potshots from other sides of a trench. Counteraction 2 should be quite simple and straightforward. But remember, simple does not always equal easy. It hardly ever does. For counteraction 2, you should seek better information. Better information is superior to shitty information, which is obviously very, very true. The hard part would be where you go to get that source of better information. In the days of hot takes and social media, this area gets murkier by the day. A lot of people, including me for a long period of time, didn't know where to look. It all just seemed like a giant pile of crap. But then I realized something. What I was consuming wasn't necessarily information. It was consuming analysis of information. In other words, it was someone talking about an event that happened rather than the event itself. This is excess culture manifesting itself into our sources of information. What we consume isn't necessarily information, but people's opinions on the information itself. It's not the original source material. It's a derivative of that original source material. Okay, you might say, that doesn't seem that hard. Just put the original sources of information up on our media and let's roll with that. One would think it would be that simple, but there's one big problem with that theory. It's not profitable. It's boring. It lacks sex appeal. It doesn't sell as well. There's a reason why there isn't one channel doing the news anymore like they did back in the day. There's a reason ESPN gave Stephen A. Smith a segment on SportsCenter. There's a reason why there is no sports center on Fox News. Or Fox Sports, rather. There's a reason why mainstream news channels have a block, about a six-hour block conveniently right after most people get off work that are run by highly opinionated people like Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow. Bold opinions and hot takes are easy to sell. They stroke emotions. They make us succumb to absolutism. And they work. All too easily, in most cases. Our media is literally overflowing with information about information. Social media influencers work the same way. At least the people in the media have an experience in the media. All you need on social media is a string bikini and an Instagram account to sell bum-ass watches that I guarantee a model A does not wear and B doesn't give two shits about. So we have a predicament. Everything about how we get our information sucks. We can't disseminate what's right from what's bullshit. We try all the time to sell who's lying and to who's telling the truth, but we can never know. But there's a very simple solution to this predicament. Don't try. Don't feed into the machine. Don't give it any attention whatsoever. Quit the news. If you can't entirely cut it out entirely, put a limit on social media. Or if you can't cut it out entirely, put a limit on social media. The big thing is to not waste your precious energy and time trying to strain out the bigger pieces of garbage from the smaller pieces of garbage. Because at the end of the day, it's all the same. Garbage. But wait, Sam, you'll say, how do we stay in- informed with all these things to keep us updated? A good question, reader, and a question that has a simple answer. Look at the original source material. It makes all too much sense. Why watch five commentators analyze the State of the Union when you can watch the State of the Union for yourself? Why listen to Skip Skip Bayless erroneously demonize LeBron James when you can watch him play for yourself and decide for yourself how he played? Why listen to some YouTuber with a man bun and wooden beads around his neck criticize Jordan Peterson for being the worst human alive when you can watch a Jordan Peterson lecture for yourself without the outside noise weighing you down? The downside of this is that it's harder and more time-consuming because forming your own opinions is hard. Investing time to seek better sources of information is hard. I get it. I've done it. And will forever do it. It sucks ass sometimes. But I'll put it to you this way. It's better for you to own the real estate between your ears than to sell it to somebody else. Counteraction 3 is perhaps the biggest hurdle for some of us to get over when it comes to absolutism. Especially when the event is a negative one. Negativity bias, remember? Doom scrolling, remember? Feedback downward spiraling death of destruction, remember? So how do we avoid this? In my opinion, you need to do two things. Acknowledge the negativity and refuse to dwell on the negativity. I've talked about mindless positivity before and it's not good. Don't do it. Bad things are just that, bad things. We should acknowledge what is bad from what is good and make that distinction. Don't turn everything into a positive experience just because it's convenient for you. It's lazy and it stunts your growth as an individual. Take it all in and see it for what it is. Feel the pain and the sting. But then you can't dwell on it. I think we as people, myself included, can all grow in the area of letting things go. Most religions are pretty good at teaching this in in their own way. For Christians, you have confession and the teaching of forgiveness of sins. For Buddhists, you have the idea of detachment from who you are as a person in the world itself. Nothing really matters in the end, to quote Freddie Mercury. You need to learn to do the same thing with negativity. Let it go. It's irrelevant. It's just something that comes and goes with life. When you dwell on it, you can allow it to fester and grow within yourself until it begins to hijack your perception and thoughts. Then absolutism kicks in, and you're fucked. Don't fuck yourself. So, if you learn anything from watching the Star Wars movies, then I expect a detailed analysis, but not an absolutist one, about the original trilogy of my next podcast from all you listeners. I would suggest you learn this. If not, you could potentially end up burning to, to near death with your limbs thrown to the side, screaming your hatred for the person on the other side of your absolutism. Don't be that guy. We live in a culture of hot takes. It's essential that we don't succumb to them. We're more elevated as a society than that. At least I hope we are. And so you mention the word sand, at least. Then all bets are off. So, thank you everyone for listening. I think this is a really important topic. Absolutism is a very, very dangerous vice that I think we all have in our society, and we all can do our part to get better at it. So. I'll see you guys next week. on the day, open your mind. Thank you for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit, and I think it well. How can I mix my grip And how should I make that nigga straight?